Well, guys, we just finished our series called Loveology. We're in this new series called Nehemiah. By the way, um, I know he would never say, like, oh, yeah, I did that and take credit or anything. Um, but if you see our middle school intern, Adam Pfizer, he does all these, like, intros and, like, cool-looking slides and stuff for us. So if you see him, if you like what he does, give him a thank you. Um, I want to let you know uh, we're going to watch a short video. You might be familiar with the Bible Project. Um, Tim Mackey and, uh, and some others put these together uh, to help us understand like the flow of certain biblical texts. And so the one we're going to look at tonight uh, is actually not just Nehemiah. Even though we're going to be going into this series called The Firm Foundation, looking at the book of Nehemiah, this uh, this video that you're going to see is actually over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because they actually flow together. They're kind of one vein of thought of kind of reestablishing the Israelites in uh, Jerusalem. And so Ezra does one part of that. Nehemiah, as another person, does another section of this. And so they're going to flow together. We're actually just going through Nehemiah in this series, but having a, an understanding of how Ezra inter interacts with that book would be helpful for us as we go through this series. So you're going to see this video, uh, and then Mitchell and I will come back up. We have some thoughts to share. We're going to close in another set of worship, and then you guys will get into your small group school. Thank 
And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition. Very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuild. And Zerubbabel confuses. He says, you have no part in it. And this, of course, generates conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophet had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel and the kingdom finally come. So this is an anti-climatic moment to take In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people, our hopes are high. Again, we come to another anti-climactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites, and they come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out, and given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi. He did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange, including Nehemiah. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays, and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the wall. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who have already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, he gets attention in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the New Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, and people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate in the opposite. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage, they have to build the city with armed guards to protect them, we keep walking to this whole conflict of the different And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements. First, positive, and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about spiritual they gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness with the Exodus and the wilderness journey. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant and follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. We're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds the 
That gives you guys a, just an overview of where we're going to be going through this book. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to ask, because uh, I think it's something we have to ask. Like we come to church, if you are somebody who considers yourself a follower of Jesus, and we, we look at something like this, a story about the Jewish people rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple, rebuilding the walls, uh, and... And it happened four, in, in 400 B.C. thereabouts. Like, I, when we look at that, I don't know about you, but like I, in my day-to-day life, am not too terribly concerned with what is currently happening in the city of Jerusalem, which, by the way, if you're unaware, still exists. I, I just, I don't know about you, but it's not something I think about all that often. And so I think the question we have to ask is, like, why are we still looking at a story that happens... 400 BC that doesn't seem to concern us all that much. Yeah, I think there are probably like two huge reasons why this is uh, very important for us to read. Number one is that it's family history. As followers of Jesus, we are adopted into this family, and just like if you were adopted into like a, a family right here on Earth in your life, you would want to know about uh, your like adopted parents grandparents and your ancestors, and you want to know about their family history. So regardless, it is the family that we are a part of, and uh, this divine family, and so it's important for us to look back and see how God has worked in their lives and and contributed. Uh, I think another big uh, point for us to want to look, I guess a reason to look at this book, is that it is a huge lesson on a dependence on God. Uh, It's said over and over and over again that uh, Nehemiah went to God in prayer, or he sought counsel, or he uh, he just relied, or he worshiped to God. Uh, Whenever he had an opportunity for a decision, he frequently goes to God in prayer. 
And so we get this example just time and time and time again of what it looks like to be reliant and to be dependent on God, which is something that, uh, as individualistic we are, we hate doing it. I think one of the things that Tim says in the video that's so powerful to me is you look at Ezra and as he says, because he likes to really pronounce things like as they are in, in, uh, Hebrew. in Hebrew. And so he doesn't say Nehemiah like we usually do, Nehemiah. Uh, we want to get real crazy with Nehemiah. you got to get some phlegm in there and really say it. But when we look at Nehemiah as an example, we're going to contrast him with the example of Christ throughout this. That Nehemiah is going to secure a, a place for Israel that is going to hopefully be safe, that's going to protect their interests, that is, is supposed to draw all the, the nations to this place to worship God. And Nehemiah ultimately fails uh, at that. And, and, and because he's imperfect, and we saw both he and Ezra over and over again, even though we will see constantly a dependence and going back to God in prayer, what we're going to find over and over again is he also listens to people. He keeps listening to the people over God, and he is pursuing uh, some selfish means, but he also tries to, to move through like political avenues. And, and one of the things that I think we should be really aware of, and I think it's going to be just a, a key point for us, I, I didn't even include this in our notes, but I'm just thinking of it right now. One of the things that I'm so aware of in our world today is the, the desire to change things through political movements. And, and the greatest religion of our day, as we sit here in the U.S., the greatest religion, and I say religion because it's the thing we, that people tend to hinge their hopes on, is politics and politicians and world leaders. They're going to save us. They're going to get us through this. They're going to do whatever we, it is we need to do. And we, we, we even can vote, which I think is a good thing, but we can vote because we're hoping on our politics and we're hoping on a, a fallen human being to come through on promises that we think will ultimately uh, suffice and, and change things for us. And what we really need is Jesus. And Nehemiah really needs to lean into consistently and only God and ultimately in the family. Well, Curtis, we have done a series like First Thessalonians. We called it Steadfast. We did a bit of Genesis. We called it Meant for Good. Uh, we just did Galatians. And that was, I know what it was. <laughs> I know what it was. <laughs> Do you? What was it? Somebody help Mitchell. Come on. I knew that. We are calling this one Nehemiah, a firm foundation. Yep. Why are we calling it that? Well, one, um, you have Nehemiah who becomes kind of a political leader, and then he decides he's going to build a wall by using other countries' finances. Never mind. Uh, so, he, uh, anyways, Nehemiah wants to rebuild Jerusalem and fortify its walls, right? And so from that end, what we see is he's trying to build, some of you guys caught up, that's good. Uh, 10 seconds late. 10 seconds late. That was like a slow burn. I liked it, okay? Um, so one of the things that we, we see, just like plain, simple, straightforward, is what do you do when you're building a massive wall? You have to have a firm foundation. Like if you look at my fence in my backyard, which is in massive need of repair, uh, the reason it's leaning is not because of the, the fence boards. It's because what started to rot out is these four by fours that are establishing the foundation of the fence 
that have rotted out from the foundation of the cement that's underneath the ground holding those four by fours in place. And so he is establishing a literal firm foundation for a wall that's going to be going up around Jerusalem. But as New Testament followers of Jesus, we want to fortify our faith by establishing a firm foundation in Christ and what he's done for us. And so we're going to be kind of going back and forth and looking like, what does this story mean in light of the New Testament followers? And uh, what are some key themes? I mean, I know we had prayer, uh, but what are some key things that you you think we're going to see as we go throughout the year? Yeah, I think one of the most apparent ones that we see right out the gate is that is prayer, and it's just an underlying posture of prayer. I said we we see it all the way throughout, but it's like in the first week that we're going to be doing this, Nehemiah goes to God in prayer, and I think about uh, just as I'm reading through. For, or as I'm reading through Nehemiah, I think of in 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul says, pray without ceasing. And he says, just, and obviously, he's not, I mean, he's not saying to be verbally praying in every moment and not do anything, but it's just have a posture of prayer and have a posture where you are just constantly going to God in every, in every applicable moment, really, in every moment that you can. And I really see Nehemiah set an example for that. We even see Nehemiah do that in several places in this narrative where He's asked a question, uh, especially by Artaxerxes, who, by the way, super evil dude. Uh, but he's asked a question by Artaxerxes, and it, the story almost does like, you know those breakaways in, the, in a show where it's like everything freezes and you kind of get like the protagonist monologue where they're talking to the screen? Maybe if you, if you leaders remember Saved by the Bell, Zach used to do it all the time, okay? But the, there's that breakaway moment, and we almost have this like view into into Nehemiah's head, where he is then like praying before he gives the answer. Um, and those are some pretty cool moments too, as we think about prayer. Yeah. I think another big one is that Nehemiah just overall displays a God-fearing base in boldness, and, or it results in boldness. And I think it's super applicable to what we're talking about in main service, where uh, exiles like us are bold in that uh, we are faithful, and that, and that faith results in boldness, and uh, and we are to have integrity to support that boldness. And so it, it really just meshes well with what we're talking about as a church. But we see that foundation. And when Nehemiah knows uh, why he believes in what he's doing and why he, he knows the root of, uh, of everything he's doing, which is God, he just has a boldness and is able to answer for his convictions. And I think that's super applicable for us today. So we've, we've gone through, uh, as we went through, we just finished Galatians, right? Uh, we just did a topical study, too, through Lovology. But when you read different kinds of scripture, uh, there might be different questions you should be asking. There might be different ways to approach it. Uh, and when we read an epistle, it seems pretty straightforward. Like What's an epistle, Curtis? An epistle, sorry, is a, is a letter that's written to a specific group of people in the New Testament. Uh, and so when we read through that, like we can, so we can just go, okay, what is what are the words that Paul, for instance, is penning or writing to this group of people? What does it mean for them? And then we can kind of go, okay, what is the, the, the universal truth, the, the truth that's still true today that we can immediately then apply to our own lives? But when we're looking at a narrative, it's like it's, it's someone else's story. And so it's not necessarily straightforward advice, do's, don'ts. Um, what are some things that just we, like even just surface level help us start understanding how we can approach a narrative. Yeah, I think it's not only a narrative, it's an Old Testament narrative, which kind of adds a whole another layer to 
uh, to what we're reading. Uh, but first of all, I would just begin with uh, a, a sense of curiosity while you go into this narrative. There's a lot of uh, old things or, or things that maybe feel like they're not applicable to us or it feels like, oh, that's kind of weird. And, and we want you to ask questions about that. We want you to find the little bits of tension. We want you to uh, look at maybe there was, uh, there's a tension that Tim talked about with uh, the, the marriage that's being talked about where uh, marriage was being instructed, or sorry, divorce was being instructed with these people who were intermarrying with, with non-Israelites. And so uh, we want you to ask questions about that, to be curious and to display a, a mindset of curiosity. And I would say to that too, like in, in all of our studies that we do, like be somewhat, if you want to know and you want to, if you want to grow, as we say here at Alderwood, if you want to grow in your faith, then you need to be somebody who's asking good questions, which means you, you need to take a posture of being curious. And so don't ask just the surface level question, but if something doesn't make sense to you, ask the question, bring it up, and then in your groups, dig into the scriptures to find those answers. Some of you guys uh, do that really, really well, because I've gone around to your small groups and I've watched you guys do this. So, uh, and, and really encourage someone else, like if you know, if somebody's leaning over to you and saying, like, encourage them to speak up, or maybe even ask it for them, because it can help them grow. So, kind of be cognizant of your group of people. Yeah. I would also say that uh, as you're studying, look, look for context. Hold on, hold on. Mitchell. You're look, looking for the... Context! Oh, there you Stop go. Yeah. We're going to look for the context. <laughs> and we, we think it's, I mean, it's super important. A lot of times when we do maybe studies in... Uh, one of the Gospels or uh, one of Paul's epistles, we can sometimes gather the context and we can put we can put clues together just by reading the text right that's in front of us, and we can we can generally draw, draw some conclusions. But especially here in Nehemiah, it's important that we maybe look back and maybe see where in uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, where uh, there is a law that's being talked about, and your Bibles do a great job of identifying these cross references. But uh, maybe look back or look forward. And uh, I think that's another big way to look uh, for the context, is to look how uh, God is being used in the story, but also make connections to the gospel and Jesus. And uh, we see Jesus tells the disciples when they are on the road to Emmaus that uh, when he says he revealed everything in the Old Testament to the, or to the disciples uh, that were pointing to him. So we know that throughout the Old Testament there are these arrows that are pointing straight to Jesus. And so we want you to look for them and, and use those, use the New Testament arrows uh, as context in the Old Testament. Great. Uh, and I want to close us with just a, a passage from uh, Matthew chapter 7. These are the words of Jesus. As we consider what it means to lay a firm foundation, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine as he's teaching and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And as we walk through this series, what I want you guys to be doing is asking a couple of questions. So I'm going to put them up here so you can look at them. Uh, and then at the end tonight, we'll put them back up at the end 
uh, when you guys go to your small group, but uh, just real simple at the start, what are you most looking forward to in this series? Maybe something we talked about tonight resonates with you, something you heard Tim say in the video. Um, what do you think a firm foundation in a relationship with Jesus looks like? Okay, so we're not looking for all the right answers here. Okay, what do you think that might look like? What does it entail? Okay, and then as you guys discuss that as a group, maybe you come up with a list of things you think that looks like. I want you to go a step further. Okay, if that's what it looks like to have a firm foundation, then what or, or how do you go about building that foundation? What does it look like? What what community needs to be developed? What what habits maybe need to exist in your own life? What do you need to lean into? Um, and so these are the questions that we're going to look at tonight as you go to your groups, but also be asking these as you go throughout this whole series. Uh, Mitchell, I'm going to have you pray for us, and then you guys can come join us up here for worship. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for being with us here tonight. Thank you for your Holy Spirit for teaching us to learn. Thank you for revealing things to us. Thank you for revealing the gospel to us. And thank you for pointing us back to the Old Testament so that we can see that you were telling us all along. Lord, I pray for this series. And I ask that you will speak through every person who comes up on this stage and teaches us. Lord, I ask that you will lead us in our studies and that we can finish out this year strong. In your name we pray. Amen.